From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. This is the story of three boys. Wait, right hey, you got a lot of time to think, you know what I'm saying? So, And what happened to them might have happened to you. You got to think about well, what you want to do. You know, you got to make the right choices not to come back here. You see, they had a plan. A plan to do something. My choice, I'm going to go back out and sell drugs. That's what I choose to do. But they didn't stop to think what the consequences of that plan might be. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sounds, sound bites, and skeins of stories we find all over the world. And now they're in trouble, real trouble. Jimmy is just plain scared. On the air, on the web, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. Today, we look at consequences, both micro and macro. From the consequences of global free trade and the war on drugs, to an intimate portrait of a teenager who struggles to understand the connection between his crimes on the street and the future of his freedom. When we're young, consequences don't mean much, even though adults are always harping on and on about how they should. Our young brains just can't think that far ahead, so adults do our worrying for us and then harp some more. Matthew was a repeat drug offender by age 16. For a year, while in juvenile detention and continuing through his release, Matthew kept an audio diary of his thoughts and feelings. And so did the judge in charge of his case. The resulting documentary highlights the delicate interplay between one man's decisions and another's future. My name is Matthew. I'm locked up. I got incarcerated for the first time at the age of 13. Did a couple months, got out. Stayed out for a little while. Got arrested again. Did some more time. Got out. Came back. I'm still here. Yeah, this is room 58. This is my room. Just turning my knob, open the window up. From right here, I can see, I can see a couple of billboards, and I can see the highway. When I first came in here, I was like five five. I couldn't look out these windows. Now I'm six four. Mm-hmm. Now it's, it's different. Man. Let's go. Right now, I'm in the foyer. This is like the little hallway towards the day room. We sit here so the staff can watch everything that's going on. Like all these guys right here that's working right now, they're like basically new. They weren't here when I was here back then. And this piece can do what? He can move straight. Or diagonal? Nah, no diagonal, just straight. Can this thing move back? No. I'm real good in chess. I just always play in here. That's why I got good, I guess. I practice, pay attention. Why him and him? Why would you take my bishop and then I use this my rook to take you? Because your rook can't kill diagonally. Because he can move side to side. Who knows what prison's supposed to seem like, but this just doesn't seem like the place that they would call prison. It's nothing to worry about. All your food's free, bed, blanket, all the envelopes free, provide you with clothes. They pay for everything. <laughs> it's like a free vacation. I don't know what pieces got me in trouble. I don't know what pieces put me in trouble. Can I help him out?
My mother, she doesn't rape me too often. Just every now and then. <clears throat> Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Fine, I hope. I missed you a lot. You know, when I, <clears throat> when I used, I always missed you so much. I might as well still be using drugs. Matthew, you're too smart for this. Act like it. Well, please. Well, please. I don't know what this says because the page got ripped before I could read it. Me and my mother were close. <clears throat> yeah, we're pretty close. She was a, she was a crackhead. When my mother first started using, I think I was about three years old, and uh, when she came back around to her senses, I was about about eleven. When I got like twelve, going on thirteen, I was a bad bad kid, like fighting, drinking. Smoking weed, you know, selling drugs, doing whatever I wanted. Then, like, I slipped up. I got arrested. Is it off? This is my man Gary. What can I do for you? Gary, so he's a your school social worker. You tell you what's what, you know what I mean? Talking to him just about every day. School, job, or the streets? How do you make those choices? Well, while you're here, you got a lot of time to think, you know what I'm saying? So you got to think about what you want to do. And, you know, you got to make the right choices not to come back here. What was your choice you told us last week that you would make? My choice, I'm going to go back out and sell drugs. That's what I choose to do. Suppose you got your GED and could start working towards college. And, you know, what would you want to do with your life other than sell drugs? I would go to college and sell drugs. But what would you go to college for? You can't major in drugs, selling. No, I can major in business. And then that's why I take drugs as a business. You're giving up all your life, Matt. You know, you're missing your high school, you're missing... You could be doing so many other things with your life, because especially you, you have such potential. I've told you that before. And I hate to see you even talking about going back. All right, so these people heard it clear from my man Gary, the social worker. Yeah. Sleep, probably like going on 10. It's Thursday tonight. I'm thinking a lot. I really, I really want big things in life. It's hard, I'm young, you know what I mean? I'm always in jail. If I'm not in jail, I'm out there trying to make the money to get what I'm trying to get. I'm telling you, it's gonna happen one day. Just like one day I'm gonna leave this place, like I always do. So tomorrow when I go to court, you know what I mean? The judge lets me out, I'm going. And I'm not gonna say it, but we all know what I'm gonna do when I get released. Lights just went out. Crawling under my blanket. Alright. See what up in the morning. I'm out. Hey, Judge. Hey, how are you, Judge? You're going to be around this morning? Yep. All right. I'll be here in about 11. All right, catch you before you go. Okay, my name is Jeremiah S. Jeremiah, Jr., and I'm the Chief Judge of Rhode Island Family and Juvenile Court. Hey, Steve. I just came in the office. It's about 7.30, and uh, my secretary's coming in. Good morning, Beth. Let's see what we have. These are the juvenile cases I have. 
One, two, three, four, five, six. Ooh, if people show up, we got a busy day. Uh, this is uh, Matthew's file. It's, inside, it's a lot bigger than other files. He's been a busy young man. Uh, they started off in the 1994 with assault and battery. In 1995, tampering with motor vehicle was dismissed, and the charges were delivery of cocaine and possession of marijuana. Well, this is way back. Look at this. This is, talks about the family. It appears that the mother was a uh, drug, used drugs, cocaine, crack, and marijuana. The father's identity is unknown. When you look at the family history, I think that kind of bothers you. Because some kids have never had a chance in life. See, during his stay at the training school, he's kept himself out of trouble. He experienced few to no problems. Hey, Judge Jeremiah, how are you? Good, can I put you on speaker? Okay. Matthew, uh, tell me about him. Uh, he, done, he did very well in my program. Never had a problem with him. He can be a good guy when he wants to be. He just needs to get his himself together in the street. What do you think? Matthew's uh, going to be 17 years old. If the chief judge feels though he <laughs> wants to give him a shot, I have no problem with that. Okay. All right, thanks, Joe. Okay. All right. Yeah, this is Matt. Inside the courthouse. We're going to go inside the courtroom. Nervous, man. That's it. Gotta see the chief. Chief judge. I think he thinks that I can change. I think he got faith in me. Like, All rise, please. But I don't really know. Hear you, hear you, hear you. All persons have a business before this family court. Holding in Providence, within and for the state of Rhode Island, in Providence Plantations. May now draw near. Give their attendance and they shall be heard. God save the state of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. The Honorable Chief Judge Jeremiah S. Jeremiah Jr. presiding. You understand what we're doing today, Matthew? You understand you moved up a couple of times, haven't you? They moved up. You goofed up. Oh, yeah. And you had heavy marijuana use. You understand that, too? Yes, sir. You understand you have a brain in your head? Yes, sir. I mean, you really, you look at it. You get, you have a, you're above average in math. You can't write too well, but you have a brain in your head. You can be something in life, can't you? Yes. yes do you want to be something in life? Yes, sir. What do you want to be? I'm not sure yet. You understand if you goof up again, you'll be 18 months in the training school. You understand that also? Yes, and you understand I'll make a promise to you right now that if you come back before me, and you're adjudicated on any offense, you'll spend 18 months. I'm going to give you one chance in life. You understand? This is your last chance. Any questions? Release. Take the handcuffs off them. Don't fail. You understand that? Yes, all right. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's obvious he's an intelligent kid. Let's give the kid a chance. If he goes up, he'll be in there for 18 months. He should know that. You gotta remember, the mission of the court is rehabilitation. It's not punishment. They're juveniles. That's our mission, and that's why when he comes before me and he has a good report at the training school and they recommend he get out early, then you let him out. But there's always a little doubt. It's a nice day, you know what I'm saying? Raining, feels good. I'm looking at downtown Providence. I'm gonna relax, have a ball. That's what I've been waiting for.
Good morning, this is Matt's mother. Um, he's back at the training school. I'm going to court to see exactly what they're going to do. I don't know. But anyway, I'm on my way out the door. Um, I'm thinking of possibly taping uh, the courtroom um, session that they're going to be doing today, if they'll allow me. Okay, thank you. Bye. How you doing, man? All right, all right. Is that the same judge as that day in this room? Yeah, the chief. The judge that he went in front of the last time. And they're charging him with uh, possession of cocaine with a tip to deliver. I'll let you know when the case is going to okay. be called, okay? All right. As soon as I find out, all right. okay? Ready in 5K. All rise, please. You may be seated. Good morning. How are you, Matthew? How are you? Yeah, just, I just got you out of the training school. Yes. How long ago? Two weeks ago. What are you doing so, back here again? Huh? Why did they come back? Yeah. They with the same people doing the same things. Well, here's what we're going to do today. The state has a motion for certification. I was hoping I wasn't going to see Judge Jeremiah. I didn't want him to just look at me and feel like I'm a disgrace or... What the hell is this kid doing? I just gave him... Like a big break. I just let him out seven months early. You understand? I had a lot of faith in you. I thought that you could go back in the community and be a real success. You kind of let me down. In fact, you really let me down. You understand that? And it kind of bothers me because I think that kids like you should be given a second chance. And I think I gave it to you. The third chance, I don't think you get. So the court will accept the admission. You'll be uh, to training school until 21 with no reviews uh, within the first year. Thank you very much. I personally feel like I failed. I feel upset about it. I let the kid out expecting that, okay, he's learned his lesson and now he's going to be okay. And he isn't. What do you do with a child like that? If a child comes back and you let him out and he comes back and you let him out and he comes back the third time, I think you better start giving up on that child. I wish I could say that when he finally finishes the training school, he'll never be back in the system again, either as a juvenile or an adult, but I can't say that. I wish I could say it, but I can't. Thanks, Barry. Thanks, Joe. See you tomorrow. This is Matt. I'm back in the Rhode Island Training School. Felt great to be out. And f this I'm fing mad. This fing dumb joint, man. This fing. Toys R Us land, man. This is a prison, but it reminds me of Toys R Us. Number of kids running around here acting dumb all day. It's a waste of my life, like, wasting it in this joint when I can be out doing things. Been doing all, it's been like my whole teenage life in this fucking joint. I think, I think I'm rehabilitatable. They don't think so. I think I am. It just didn't break through right there. It'll happen. You know? I imagine me doing good, just living life the way everybody else does.
working, coming home. That's it. Probably my own joint, my own little business on the side. You know what I mean? Like a little store. Corner store. Selling knowledges and sunflower seeds. And pampers and fucking milk and eggs and cheese. I see myself running it, owning it. Why not, right? Matthew and the Judge, Juvenile Court Diary, was produced by Joe Richman of Radio Diaries and first aired on NPR's All Things Considered. We were saddened to learn that after serving more than half his teenage years in a juvenile facility, Matthew Amasor was killed by a 16-year-old rival drug dealer one day before his 19th birthday. To learn more about Matthew and find a link to his audio obituary, go to Third Coast Festival. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Each week, we try to take you to places you've never been, both literally and figuratively. Tell us about the trip. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. There's a consequence to everything we do. You hear what I'm saying? 25% of the houses have been abandoned. 100,000 jobs have been lost. 40% of the businesses have closed. The city is dying. There's consequences with every thought, every action. Mexico is collapsing. Just over the border of El Paso, Texas, Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, has been infamously dubbed the murder capital of the world. The homicide rate there is more than three times any city in the United States, and the news is full of civilians caught in the crossfire between warring gangs. Journalists and government officials are specifically targeted, and many have been gunned down in broad daylight. The city is so mired in these problems that teasing out the causes of such a complicated situation is a Herculean task. But an external perspective can sometimes help. In our next documentary, Australian producer Cole McNaughton bravely traveled to this dangerous city to try and make sense of what's happening there. I'm traveling overland to the border from Mexico City. And the further north I go, the more the tension increases. People avert their eyes and retreat into an invisible, protective bubble. Convoys of armored cars and troops jam up the highway. The air begins to tremble. I am Ruby Panda Hernandez. I'm the mother of Iris Estrella Enriquez Panda. She disappeared on May the 2nd, 2005. After 12 days, we unfortunately found her dead. When she was found, it was outside the city, and she was in a rubbish bin and was practically buried in concrete. Many hundreds of young women have been raped and murdered in the city of Juarez, usually with impunity. Most of these young women worked in maquiladoras, or free trade zone factories. 
I was seven months pregnant. The first thing they did, instead of telling me that they have her, they show me in a little box her earrings. And they asked me, do you recognize them? I said, of course. Going into Juarez to meet mothers of the disappeared was pretty intimidating. A journalist was shot the week before I arrived. I asked three different people to be my guide. They all refused and said, to be with a journalist is a death sentence. We paid a special person who retrieved a bit of the girl's bone to do the test. I was telling them, look at the teeth and look for a scar she has on her body. Of course, we didn't find anything because she was in a liquefied state. They explained to me that when they removed the cement, the milk teeth fell out and you could see the new ones coming through. And then we went on and on until they sent the results that it was Iris. There are many theories about why women are being killed in Juarez. A growing snuff film industry, a gang of powerful locals, changes in gender relations and male machismo are all cited. Whatever the motives for these murders, one thing is certain. The killers are still operating unhindered. Through me you go to the grief-wracked city. Through me to everlasting pain you go. Through me you go and pass among lost souls. Justice inspired my exalted creator. I am a creature of the holiest power, of wisdom and the highest, and of primal love. Nothing till I was made was made, only eternal beings. And I endure eternally. Surrender as you enter every hope you ever had. Dante Inferno, Canto 3. I'm descending into hell, and it's signposted with names like Reynosa, Nuevo Laredo, and Juarez, which novelist and border commentator Charles Bowden calls the laboratory of the future. Many women and men are sacrificed, tortured, died, and nobody is responsible for nothing, and they say that organized crime, that drug dealers, the narco guys are doing all these things, and but they don't connect. They think that it's separate, but it's not. When the door was open for development, the door was open also for drugs, guns, and laundry money, and weapons, and so on, but also for the militarization. Right now, the Mexican government are sending all the militars all over the country to try to combat these uh, narco guys. My god is Marta Ojeda. She worked in a maquiladora, for 20 years. She led the 1994 strike at Sony in Nuevo Laredo, which is a bustling industrial city in the state of Tamilupas in Mexico's northeast. This strike kicked off a wave of factory rebellions. Marta became an organizer with the campaign for justice in the Maquiladoras. Everything is connected. 
And uh, if you put all the pieces, you can have all the complete puzzle of the capitalism and how it's been affecting uh, our communities right here. NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, is a treaty between Canada, the United States and Mexico. It came into force on the 1st of January, 1994. This is our opportunity to provide an impetus to freedom and democracy in Latin America and create new jobs for America as well. It's a good deal and we ought to take it. NAFTA opened Mexico up to new levels of foreign investment. There are now nearly 4,000 maquiladoras along the border, employing 1.6 million workers. NAFTA also sparked off the Zapatista uprising, an armed insurgency by indigenous farmers in the south of the country. Independencia, democracia, libertad, justicia y paz. Ernesto and Gomesinda live with their two sons in a two-bedroom concrete house in a working-class colonia or suburb of Reynosa. Reynosa is the other big industrial city in the Mexican state of Tamilupas. They work for 10 years making seatbelts for the US company TRW. During the global economic crisis, they were sacked and none of the monies owed to them was ever paid. Durante muchos años, nosotros hemos sufrido las consecuencias for many years, we have suffered the consequences of the implementation of NAFTA. We've been sold the idea that with this agreement, our country will jump to the first world. But nevertheless, after 15 years, the only thing it has brought us is crisis, poverty and inequality. And not just for us, the workers, the Mexican people, but for the Canadians and the people of the U.S. There's no doubt that NAFTA has been the source of incredible riches. For some, Mexico has more billionaires than any other nation but workers in the factories have seen their wages continually fall. We were working more hard uh, from the sunrise to the sunset and uh, all our dreams were there in the assembling lines and it never was enough. Our income was every time more low and low and low and low. A Mexican factory worker earns eight, nine, ten US dollars a day and because the cost of living is so high, it's impossible to survive off just one job, which may help to explain why in the borderlands the cost of dying is so low. The disfigured and dysfunctional reality that is Mexico is a product of free trade and the illegal narcotics industry converging in the NAFTA corridor. Right here, Nuevo Laredo, Mexico, is the door not just from Mexico to the United States, it's the door from North America for the import and export and for all the goods. But all these things is connected also with drugs. 
because when the border was open, it was not just open for goods or for corporations to bring uh, jobs and so on. It was also open to trucks full of goods, also was high and full of drugs. The Uruguayan author, Eduardo Galeano, calls the NAFTA corridor an open vein. It's his metaphor to explain the massive transfer of wealth from the south to the north. As Galeano reminds us, we in the north continue to be fed by their hunger and clothed by their nakedness. In the borderlands, it's not only workers and their wages that are kept down. A central part of the NAFTA agreement is that Mexico's environmental laws can't be enforced if they go against the interests of the market. Right now, uh, we are in Laredo, Mexico, and uh, we are in the sewage that is coming from uh, Finza Industrial Park, where all these corporations, as uh, auto industry, electronic, medical supply, all of them are producing the goods from the uh, United States, Europe, and all around the world. But um, the chemicals that they use to produce all these goods they are dumping everything to this uh, sewage that is coming direct to the river. And you can see how the smells of the ammonia is so strong and all these chemicals. And you can see how it goes direct to the river without any protection. You can see it right here on the bottom. All the nature is totally dead. And uh, all the industrial park are just dumping the toxic waste direct to the river. How long have you been fishing here? Like around 10 years. What sort of fish do you catch? Catfish. Mostly it, it comes catfish only, and I don't know the name of the other one, but the lapia, yeah, that's how you call it. And you know like about five, maybe 10 meters that way, there's a big pollution outlet? Yeah, I know it is, but I think that the fish we, we catch is clean. I think, I don't know. We ate it and I haven't died. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. But it's okay. So what's the government doing about this? Absolutely nothing. From the mid-1990s, the Mexican market was flooded with cheap subsidised corn from the US. This put more than two million campesinos, poor farmers, out of work. The people of corn are importing corn. They have two options, migrate north or grow drug crops for the narcos. Many move north and settle in colonias or shanty towns such as Blanca Navidad or White Christmas, situated on the outskirts of Nuevo Laredo. Blanca Navidad is a parched, dusty settlement of 300 families, just off the busy highway. It's a desolate place of cactus and scrawny rabbits. Houses made out of discarded packing crates and old tin. Beer bottle tops are used to make nails. The community doesn't have electricity, sewerage, schools or a medical centre. The residents are plagued with unemployment, bad health, police and paramilitaries. We're here because we don't have an alternative. Our wages are very low, we can't pay the rent, so we decided to occupy this land. After a year, the authorities came and tried to evict us, using all the luxury of violence. 
este, tumbándonos las casas, they pulled down the houses, burnt them, bashing children and older people. Nosotros las mujeres estábamos solas porque we women were alone because the men were out working. de la casa estaban trabajando. And we decided to fight back. Entonces nos encontraron solos. Even the heavy machinery with whatever we had in our hands. Estábamos decidimos no esperar, sino luchar, luchar contra esas And we stood in rows with the children and the women. Con lo que teníamos al alcance de nosotros que eran palos y piedras y con vallas hicimos vallas de, de niños y mujeres Blanca is one of the founders of Colonia Blanca Navidad as is Juana Tengo ahorita soy desempleada pero desde marzo este por lo ahorita por lo de la crisis I've been out of work since March because of the crisis I was sacked Este pero trabajé siete años I worked in a maquila for seven years and eight months. La verdad, para mí, como the truth for me as a worker is very sad. Triste. They exploit us at many levels. The wages are low. This is why I, as a maquiladora worker, had the need to come here and get a piece of land for my children, because I don't have the resources to buy a house in other parts. Like me, there are thousands and thousands of women from the Maquila daughters without money. We have the need to come and grab this piece of land by force. All that I witness now, the blood, the wounds, there is no doubt, all human speech would fail. Our powers, whether of mind or tongue, cannot embrace that measure of understanding. Twelve of the bodies were discovered gagged with their hands tied. They're fighting that war with weapons they acquire in the United States. Our goal is to provide assistance to break up these huge cartels, which are funneling tonnage quantities of illegal drugs into our country on a regular basis. President Obama laid out the new plan at his press conference on Tuesday night. We are sending millions of dollars in additional equipment to provide more effective surveillance. We the U.S. government polices its uh, southern border ferociously. We are coordinating very effectively with uh, the Mexican government and President Calderon, who has taken on a extraordinarily difficult task of dealing with uh, these drug cartels that have gotten completely out of hand. Uh, and when so I ventured into the US, I traveled by bus, sure a mode of transport favored by poor Latinos. One night just outside McAllen, Texas, after having our IDs checked, our bags searched, and sniffer dogs go through the bus, we were made to stand in two lines out in the street and an x-ray machine was used to see if any of us were drug mules. Spending $30 billion building a wall along the 3,000-kilometer border to stem the flow of illegal migrants.
I'm visiting Casa Magrante Nazaret in Nuevo Laredo. It's dinner time. About 100 people are sitting down to eat in the central hall of this halfway house for migrants and deportees. Casa Magrante is run by a Catholic order and they have hostels in many different places along the border. By hook or by crook, everyone in this room is trying to make their way across La Frontera. This house was opened in February 2004. Here in this house we have 66,000 migrants in this for five years. Father Francisco is the founder of Casa Magrante Nazareth. The people that come in from South America, from Central America and South of Mexico, they are very poor. They arrive here in this border, they, they have nothing. The only hope they have is uh, to link with the relatives there in the United States. And they send money for, for them, or they send the coyote to pick them up and uh, to bring to the States. If the parents, the, the relative from there said, no, I have no money, I can't help you, they have to go back. Now, this is their situation now. estimated about half a million people cross the US border illegally every year. Many don't make it. In the last 15 years, more than 5,600 people have died. Sometimes they die of thirst or drown. Many are killed in accidents or are murdered. So we're walking over here and we'll see the opening of the tunnel. I'm in El Paso, Texas. As the crow flies, we're only 200 metres from Juarez, Mexico. I'm with Gary, an ex-stockbroker from Chicago. He's seen from the inside how money laundering works. He's now a student of anthropology, living in El Paso. Gary's giving me a tour of the tortilla curtain, the 10 or so kilometres of intensive security aimed at stopping illegal migrants. We're right down, you know, in between El Paso and Juarez, Mexico. We're on the El Paso side right now. It's probably maybe um, 100 yards or so to the Rio Grande River, and you know, there's a lot of border patrol around here these days. Uh, 20 to 30 years ago, you could quite easily just cross the border right here from El Paso to Juarez or Juarez to El Paso. Actually, about 200 feet from where we're standing on the U.S. side, there's uh, the opening of a, a drainage tunnel that goes up underneath the University of Texas El Paso campus. So what people would do is they would get across the Rio Grande from Mexico and then get into that tunnel. But there's a series of other tunnels all along this area of the highway set up to drain the water. But if undocumented immigrants can get into those tunnels, they're hard to catch, they're hard to find. And uh, that's one of the ways to get in. A lot of uh, drug smugglers have used these tunnels you know, over the years. Uh, talked to Border Patrol agents and DEA agents that have told me stories of chasing smugglers through these tunnels. That's the, some of the new high-tech border security equipment. You know, there's cameras that they can, you know, rotate in any direction, and looks like it's focused right over here where the, where the weak point is. We'll see what'll happen. Perhaps they'll see us on those cameras, and then they'll, they'll call out to the man in the field around here that there's some activity right down here at the river. Maybe someone will come out and talk to us. 
now we're standing right at the canal that runs parallel to the Rio Grande River. What's dangerous is, is you, you see just up here about, about 100, 200 feet is where the canal goes underground into a tunnel. And uh, a lot of uh, undocumented immigrants who try to cross will get into this canal and they'll get pulled in and they will drown in those tunnels. There's supposed to be safety ropes and things for them to hold on to. I don't see any around here, uh, you know, in case they get caught in here. But the canal goes under here. You could cross over it, over a little road right there, and then you just got to get across the Rio Grande River. And a lot of times the Rio Grande River is dry, and you can just walk across the dry riverbed, you know, then you're in, in Mexico. Or you could cross from Mexico coming this way, and you get into this tunnel, and you run. There's estimated to be up to 18 million illegal migrants working in the U.S. The money they send back to their families in Mexico is worth 18 billion U.S. dollars a year. I was down there one day and I, I saw these six women. It was like two older women, you know, probably in their you know, later 60s or even 70s. Two younger ladies and then two young girls. They were all in a group. Maybe they were Tara Humara. They were uh, mestizo, uh, Mexicans, and... Um, you know, I knew what they were trying to do. I knew they were trying to cross, and that you know, we made eye contact across the river. I just felt sorry for them at that point, and I gave them a signal, you know, to come ahead. I motioned for them, you know, come on. And they came across the pipes, and I stayed like 100 feet ahead of them the rest of the way, and I led them through the whole tunnel system. And it comes up right underneath uh, the engineering building, and I um, brought them up, and it was like, Right during, in between classes, there was a lot of students walking around and we just blended in. We walked across the UTEP campus. I brought them to my dorm room and they had a phone number and an address for a place up the road in a little town near El Paso. And I drove them to, to this house where apparently they had friends or that people were gonna employ them in some way. And then I never saw them again, but uh, you know, left them there and they were grateful that I had helped them, I guess. La Frontera has always been a safety valve for releasing social pressures in Mexico. Clamping down on movement increases the tension. There's a war going on. In late 2006, Mexico's military-imposed president, Felipe Calderón, launched an offensive against some of the major narco organizations. So his government was in a crisis from the beginning because nobody believed in the project. So from the beginning, he didn't have any political validity, and then it got worse for him. In terms of economical turmoil, the violence escalating, the government not being able to do anything against what's seeding the country from inside, you still see all, all of these massacres going on, and nobody does anything about that. So I think if you ask me if it's a failed state, I would say yes. David Sada is a social researcher from Mexico City. Forty-five thousand troops were mobilized and sent to different parts of the country, but mostly to the borderlands. We could see deeply into the eyes of Abyss. Over the past three years, the military presence has led to more killings. In 2006, the body count was 2,500. Now it's 8,000 per annum and rising. 
narco wars are just killing a hundred people every single day in different parts of the country, right? Reporters are being killed, uh, politicians are being killed on a daily basis. In Tijuana, they castrated one of the political representatives, right? Like the Inquisition used to do. A month or so ago, they raided two drug addict rehabilitation centers focused on former narco gang members. They executed 20 of the patients. Execution style, lined them up against the wall and they shot them. So people are desensitized from this, this, this violence. So I think Mexican society has that deeply embedded in the system and in its deepest levels of, of Mexican subconscious. You can feel it every single day. You don't see people trying to connect in a human way. They're just trying to move like carcasses, like walking around without any purpose. You and your greed bring misery to the world, trampling the good and raising up the wicked. To me, one of the great ironies is that the United States spends $20 billion in the war against drugs, and the Mexican drug cartels make approximately $40 billion, in other words, double the amount that's spent to fight against them. But both need each other. Without prohibition of drugs, drug cartels wouldn't exist. On June 30, 2008, George W. Bush signed the Merida Initiative, a law extending the NAFTA agreement to include security. The idea is to give Mexico $1.4 billion worth of primarily military hardware, but also to help them with expertise and some advising in their efforts to attack the seven big drug cartels in Mexico. Howard Campbell, professor of anthropology at the University of El Paso, Texas, is one of the most outspoken critics of the U.S. war on drugs. Historically, the Mexican military has been used to repress social movements, and the leaders of the Mexican military have often been in cahoots with drug cartels. I think that the U.S. sending money and weaponry to the Mexican military will cause increased violence in Mexico. It will not end the drug war. It will worsen it. It's something like the situation in Afghanistan. The corruption of the Mexican police is all too well known, but the deep corruption within the Mexican military is rarely mentioned, let alone analysed. And we very much admire the courage and resolution of our Mexican counterparts who are bravely confronting these cartels in their own backyard. David Ogden, Deputy Attorney General of the United States. In the last 10 years, there have been more than 150,000 deserters from the Mexican army. A significant number joined the narcos, where pay and conditions are much better. I was preoccupied by the violent situation around my house and the silence of the military because I had information of 170 cases where nothing was being done. I asked my boss to intervene in protecting me because I felt that I was at risk. Gustavo de la Rosa Ikerson is a human rights activist and a professor of law. He's trying to draw attention to the wave of human rights abuses committed by the military in Juarez. 
One day in September, I was threatened. Someone got out of a car with a gun saying, get out or you'll be killed. After that, another morning, a young person came and said that the group of people who were killing in my area had said that I was on their list to be killed. After his bodyguard was gunned down, he fled to the United States, where he's now living. I was informed that the US government was offering asylum, but if I accept it, I have to submit to a process. I said no. I said, I'm not asking for asylum because the Mexican government must protect me and there's already a whole operation for my protection and that I want to be able to work in Mexico. We were discussing this when the superior came into the room. He said, Senor de la Rosa, we can't take you back to Juarez because there's a real risk of you being killed. Gustavo is now living in El Paso, Texas. The Mexican state is not really fighting the narcos. First, the government is thoroughly corrupt. Second, they're outgunned. Third, without narco money flowing through Mexican banks, their economy will collapse. So what we see on TV is a carefully staged managed theatre involving the more expendable lower ranks of the narcos. Great care is taken to avoid interrupting business as usual. In Nuevo Laredo, I witnessed the tail end of a demonstration by narco families and their supporters against the military presence in their city. For many folks joining the narcos, is a way out of poverty. Other ironies in my research is I found that a lot of the people I interviewed within U.S. law enforcement did not agree or believe in the war on drugs. They thought we were in fact losing the war on drugs. The war on drugs model has created an external enemy to distract from internal dissent and division. Protest is being criminalized. It got to a point where it's absurd, where you see that Nobody believes in anything anymore. Nobody sees a way of integrating themselves to a project because there is no project. Everybody's just trying to survive it on a daily basis. Everybody feels like we're in a war zone, so I don't know what's going to happen, but I think it's going to break down into something, something bad in the next few years. Five years or so, there's going to be some mishappenings. And I think the only thing that's being pointed out right now is that the narcos are just being used by the external agents and external factors to invalidate the government and make it look weaker than it is. With the militarization all over the country, they say that is to fight the narcos, but we know that it's not like that because for real there are no fighting narcos. They are giving a show to the United States in order to, they can prove that they can receive all those $400 billion the United States is giving them to build a military base in Merida, uh, with the plan Merida. So they want just to show to the United States they are the good guys in order that they can have more money. But the militars are all around, especially on the border, and both borders, north and south. In Chiapas, you can see really strong. But why? But because it's a lot of resistance. The soldiers are in the places where are social movements strong in Oaxaca in Chiapas and the border. 
when it's been people organizing and mobilizing, and they are waiting that soon something can happen, and they want to be ready to repress that. Right now, all the activists, social activists, now we are becoming the target. The war on drugs has failed. Unless, of course, you're an arms manufacturer selling your wares to all sides, or you run a private prison or migrant detention centre. For these industries, business is booming. To talk about corruption and the narcos in Mexico is dangerous. In the last six years, more than 50 journalists have been murdered, at least half on the borderlands. No one has ever been charged, let alone prosecuted. In Mexico City, I contact two prominent media outlets and ask for interviews. I'm told we don't talk publicly about La Frontera. I cross over at Laredo and venture into the United States to meet with Ninfar Martinez. She's the owner of El Mañana, a daily paper published in Nuevo Laredo. It's a universal project to make poor the poor people and to make richer the rich people or the political people. And we're the slaves. Ninfa lives in the U.S. because it's too dangerous for her in Mexico. That's the dangerous for newspaper workers because they're killing us. Money makes the world go wrong. Money makes the, the world go backwards. One of her sons was murdered, another kidnapped, and returned after paying a ransom. Editors of the paper have also been killed. Numerous reporters bashed and intimidated. Their premises have been hit with grenades and sprayed by machine guns. We have very good investigators. We don't investigate anymore. They killed them. The other major daily newspaper in this city, El Lider, is owned and run by narcos. I'm visiting the downtown offices of El Mañana. After examining the damage done to the premises by grenades and machine gun fire, I meet the editor, Heriberto Cantu. The sane part of society is paying for the sick part of society. In other words, the ones who promote the drug business, not only in Mexico, but in the USA and Canada, are damaging the innocent, the sane part of their society. A democratic and modern state must stop this tendency. It should stop it in a definite way. And I think that the only solution is the legalization of some drugs. When the forces of the state don't fight this problem, the press and other institutions become a target of terrorism. What's emerging in Mexico is not a failed, but a narco state. The thin veneer of a functioning government that still exists does so because it's useful. It protects the narcos from outside intervention and the state's weaknesses allow them to act with impunity. The problem is much bigger than many people will admit. Antonio Maria Costa, head of the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, argued recently that the proceeds of organised crime were the only things that kept some banks from collapsing last year. In other words, 
legal forms of capitalism depend on illegal forms for their very survival. For when the powers of working intellect are wed to strength and absolute ill will, then humans cannot find a place to hide. So all these things is putting all the pieces together, try to bring the history back in order to get ready for, for the beginning. Two thousand and ten is a watershed in the history and mythology of Mexico. It marks two hundred years since their liberation from Spain and a century since the revolution of nineteen ten. In this country, if you don't organize then there's no hope for anything. Struggle, strike, revolution, whatever you want to call her. I think that we need to look for another name. What we have to think is that this crisis is a big opening for something new in our country. And I hope that in the same way that we are being the model for all this uh, uh, exploited system, for all this uh, greed uh, corporation, that they, they were really wild exploring our people, environment and everything, I hope that also we can be the model for resisting, fighting back, and building something new. But the good thing is going to be something that we need and that we are building, and it's going to be something different. We climbed, he going first and I behind, until through some small aperture, I saw the lovely things the skies above us bear. Now we came out and once more saw the stars. La Frontera was produced by Cole McNaughton and Nick Franklin for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's 360 on Radio National. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, Chicago's Navy Pier, and American Airlines. The Third Coast International Audio Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.